Welcome to the Know Your City podcast, where we talk about cities, learn about their leaders, and discuss the issues that are impacting our communities. This podcast is brought to you by Inclusive Action for the City, a nonprofit community development organization based in Los Angeles. Know Your City is produced live from our Los Angeles headquarters, so if you hear office sounds, that's just the sound of work getting done. So today's Know Your City guest is Rostin Wu. We are very excited to have him here. Uh, he's an artist in the LA area, and he's also the co-founder and former executive director of the Center for Urban Pedagogy. It's a New York-based nonprofit organization dedicated to using art and design to foster civic participation. His art helps people understand complex systems and participate in group decision-making. He produces that work in partnership with local and national groups, and soon he will actually be partnering with us, the Los Angeles Street Vendor Campaign, to develop a guide for vendors here in the City of Angels. What's up, Rustin? Yeah, welcome. welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So, Rustin, you're well known across the country for your artistry and bringing the needs of marginalized groups into your work. But you studied government, right? Yep, absolutely. So how did you make this transition into art and design? Well, I mean, I think like most people's, I don't know, like many people's career trajectories, it's a pretty circuitous path. But, um, you know, I studied government political theory uh, in college. As soon as I got out of college, I was like, I need to do something that feels like much more like grounded. Um, so I started working um, with an organization called Common Ground in New York City, and they are an affordable housing developer. Their sort of tagline at least at that time, was you know permanent housing uh, for formerly homeless people. And they sort of pioneered the idea of supportive housing, um, having housing with social services all wrapped up in it. Um, and so I started working in that field, and um, particularly um, part of my job was trying to convince people to uh, not protest our buildings when we were building a new, <laughs> a new development. <laughs> um, and I think that, that that experience of kind of spending time in those kinds of public hearings really impressed upon me just how much people's sense of um, how they interpret the city and they, you know, their fears and their kind of um, what they're bringing to like uh, that experience, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, how much that shapes the horizon of what's possible when you're talking about urban development or urban planning. Um, so I became kind of, I mean, I've always been interested in, in cultural things. I've always been interested in museums and um, history and things like that. But I think for a while I'd sort of kept that in a different part of my brain, being like, that's just like stuff I'm interested in, but I have to do something like worthwhile <laughs> with my life. And I think at some point I realized, oh, these things are actually kind of more connected than than I think they are, that there's actually a lot of work to be done in just changing the way someone frames an issue or thinks about it. And that kind of sets up all the ground of what's possible from there. And that horizon of possibilities a really relevant place to be doing work. And that, it, you know, I guess the corollary to that is like cultural work, even though it doesn't often seem like it has this like immediate, like tactical payoff is part of like that foundation building that leads to a different horizon of what's possible, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. Right. Was there a first piece? What was the first piece you produced? <laughs> um, one of the first pieces I did, um, that was you know really public piece was with an organization called Place in History, and it was down on the uh, piers of a neighborhood called Red Hook in in New York. And Place in History is sort of an organization that tries to bring you know historical events into like a present context, so people have a sense of like what what is this place? What is you know what is what is kind of guided it thus far? And so that piece was actually a sound installation. Um, 
that was basically taking these old field recordings that had been done by folkways in like the 60s, back when Red Hook was an active peer, mm -hmm. um, and placing it kind of uh, on this this kind of very clearly no longer an active peer. And then there's a bunch of displays that sort of told the story of, um, it's actually become really relevant again, but the history of um, automation on the port and the struggle for the guaranteed annual income, which was something that was really big in the 60s and is now kind of becoming um, yet an, another, there's another push for it now. But basically, uh, longshoremen were actually able to to fight for and win a guaranteed annual income. So the existing people who were part of the Longshore Workers Union when they automated the port had income for the rest of, rest of their lives. Obviously, there's like trade-offs there in terms of like a closed system of who gets that, <laughs> that benefit. But it's sort of like an un, unknown history of that that labor struggle. So that sound recording and the associated kind of um, panels sort of told that story. So that was one of the first pieces I ever did in a public public sphere. Um, and I think something I'm generally been interested in my whole life is um, is all kinds of self-determination politics, but particularly ones based around around labor and, and work. So expanding a little bit more on your work in New York, um, you're a co-founder of the Center for Urban Pedagogy. Tell us about how you think advocacy and design work together and how you see the nonprofit and design worlds meshing in your work. <clears throat> so the history of CUP and the Center of Urban Pedagogy, a lot of what we what formed our initial uh, interest in in advocacy was specifically thinking about conversations about land use. And I think it's it's very prominent in land use, but it, ex it exists kind of throughout our democracy. But I think there's this huge gap between sort of what we're told to expect our our ability to, to participate in shaping our lives is and the kind of the result. You know, so it, throughout New York and LA, there's all these kind of like official public hearing processes. Like you can't really do a land use action without having all these setups of like, you know, everyone's got to hear from everybody who's going to be infected. Da, da, da. But of course, most people who participate in these and many people who don't kind of understand them to be kind of a total scam. Like there's not there's not real participation that's going on there. That's not where you're actually going to make a difference. You're not going to be able to like go to the public hearing, say your say your bit and then like walk away and have that <laughs> have any weight. You know, there's all that work that goes on kind of behind the scenes. Um and there's also kind of this big gap between people who are the experts who are sort of in charge of like making regulations about our city and then the everyday people who are sort of the, you know, the people who receive the policy or have to live with it. Um, and so I see design kind of fitting into that in sort of two different ways. Um, you know, the main one is that I think a lot of people stay out of these processes. Partly, I kind of call it like hiding in plain sight, like the politics are so boring or they seem so technical that they don't really feel like, well, what would I have to say about a rezoning in this neighborhood? Like, that's just like a bunch of egghead stuff that I wouldn't even be able to communicate my concern if I wanted to. Um, and I think that's often really false and is, you know, part of it, part of it is by design, I think. You know, there's, there's a lot of politics where it's like, we don't really actually want people to participate, so we're not going to spend any energy or resources making this process of participation have results feel feel good feel interesting and so that's a place where kind of trying to design that process and intervene in that little space um you can do a lot just being like oh now suddenly there's a lot more people who are interested in this question um i mean and then the other piece 
you know, it does have to do with, you know, how can you use design as, um, as a tool of education and research. I am someone who really believes that designs, you know, the kind of design that I'm really interested in is not necessarily just, um, about communicating a point of view. Um, that's, I think part of all visual culture is, is kind of an embedded story and embedded point of view, but you know, it's not so much like making a really great protest graphic, but so much as there's visual ways into understanding how a system works. And so if you can diagram that system, um, and give it a real visual form, it, it becomes a lot more um, tangible for people and they have a better way of, of engaging with it. Rustin, why, why does this matter so much to you personally? You know, uh, I, <laughs> it's a good question. You know, I don't, I feel like a lot of people, I don't have like this one obvious, like this happened to me when I was a kid and I always, you know, had this, had this one particular reason I cared about, um, about equity or justice. But I think that it's, it has, I think, always struck me <laughs> that, that people's access to, to basic resources of our society is, is dramatically, you know, it's, it's shared, but it's not shared equally. And I think that that has always seemed like, um, I don't know, a, a, a problem to me. I think this is like a, I've been thinking about this lately, and it's a, kind of a, not a random story, but it's uh i'm sure it's not the whole the whole tale but i grew up in seattle washington and i was definitely thinking of myself as a product of um like uh, mandatory desegregation of schools which was like a really active policy when i was a kid so school busing was um just part of our framework and now most of that's been totally dismantled and we have like you know these completely segregated schools again but i feel like in particular, um, I went to this school that was like, it was a public school, but it was like the magnet, and they'd set it up in this totally um, scamming the system way where they basically put the magnet in the city, in the school that had like the largest population of black students. Um, and so it was in the black neighborhood in the center of Seattle. And so if you looked at it on paper, it'd be like, oh, well, this is like a really integrated school, but it was basically like a totally, um, like an apartheid type system where you had like one set of students taking one set of classes, another set of students taking the other classes. And I think that, you know, possibly like that environment, like makes it like really clear, like how much like these kind of systems of government, um, really structure people's life chances. So I feel like that environment was something that, that has definitely influenced like the way I think about like what can public policy do and why the limitations of it also. So I think that's where that, that piece, you know, part of where that comes from. And I'm not really sure where I can say like why I think that like art or visual culture seem like the, the path for me, except for just knowing that there's just been a lot of experiences in my life where that has, you know, I've been able to, to witness something um, that really opened my sense of possibility. Well, sir, um, we're grateful that you're in, on on uh, with us and doing and supporting organizations like ours and, and others. Uh, we were really inspired by the work you did for street vendors in New York City. Um, and listeners, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, you should check out Rostin's Vendor Power Guide that gives information for vendors in NYC on uh, how and where they can work. Thousands of copies were distributed to street vendors in New York for free. It was for free.
It's amazing. Yeah. And because of that project, I mean, I think when we started uh, working with our partners, ELAC, the Food Policy Council, Public Council, and the LA Street Vendor Campaign, uh, we were already forecasting the future and thinking if we are able to win in legalized street vending, we're going to need education materials like the Vendor Power Guide. Who made this? Oh, it's this guy named uh, Rossin Wu and, and other artists. Um, so we have been talking about talking to you about working together for a really long time. Um, and we've been having some great planning discussions and we're excited to get a project started. Why do you think it's important to replicate something like that here in Los Angeles? Well, I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's really obvious just that, you know, there's tons of street vending in Los Angeles. I mean, just like, just like there is in New York, but I'd say the framework for street vending in Los Angeles up until now, um, for sure. And then sort of as, you know, TBD, I guess, as, as, as it kind of comes together. But, you know, it just has, it's a dramatic, the kind of precarity that someone who's a street vendor has to live with in their life. Um, and in particularly in New York where it's, um, or sorry, in Los Angeles where it's, you know, it's almost iconic of what the city is when you think of like, what, what makes LA LA? Street vending is like a huge part of it. And yet, you know, basically people who are doing it have almost no protections um, to continue that way of life. So, it's kind of like, you know, is one level is just sort of making it, um, creating a creating a system where people can do it and know that they have the right to be there is like one level. But then as you sort of, you know, after you've done that, then you're basically just at the New York level where it's like you have the right to be there, but there's maybe still improvements you could have in the law. And just the fact that people might not really know what their rights are, you have this unequal, what I sort of consider like a unequal access to law. Like a phrase that I kind of encountered recently was um, kind of uh, is operational transparency, which I think is a useful way of thinking about it, where it's like ostensibly anybody has access to the law. Like, you know, anyone can look it up, you know, it's in the paper or whatever, but you know, you need, there's so many barriers to having access to that. So in New York, it's like, even if you already had like a lot of time on your hands, you had a law degree, you knew which five parts of the administrative code to go look it up in, and you had fluent command of English, like you still probably wouldn't really be able to understand when you were legal and when you were not legal. And when in that situation, you know, you can basically be harassed by anybody who doesn't want you to be there. And there's lots of reasons someone might not want you to be there. Like they, it's a bricks and mortar store and they're like, quit cutting into your business, you know, yada, yada. You know, so there's so many reasons why someone would just say, hey, you can't be here. And then if you know that like, you know, you're two fines away from having to quit, then you basically are just going to move anytime someone tells you to. So you don't really have that protection of the law in any real meaningful way. So I think that's a, a place where you can intervene as a, as a designer or as someone who's trying to communicate in a, a policy of like just getting people to understand, okay, here's what your rights are. Here's what to do if someone stops you or tells you you can't be there and you have this kind of whole course of action to go through. So I feel like that's sort of, you know, that's what we were trying to do in New York. And now that there actually is a framework <laughs> in LA, you know, it's important to have that piece so that people actually have not only personally that knowledge, but some way to communicate that to other people saying like, no, I know I have a right. And here's this like very official looking thing that shows exactly my right to be here. I think that can really change the interaction that happens like on the street in that moment. Mm. And by the way, guess who texted me just a little bit ago? Sean from the street oh, awesome. project in New York. So I told them we were actually interviewing you and he says, <laughs> he says, hi. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Rostin, that's uh, what you just said is so important to us. I think um, at Learn, uh, working with our allies, we saw so many times when vendors would just go to City Hall and didn't even know which way to turn, didn't know uh, that they had an opportunity to speak in a committee. Uh, 
we saw them time and time again not uh, not even having translation devices to even access the system. And so uh, creating tools and guides like what you did in New York and what you'll create in L.A. Uh, is, is super important. Do you think you're going to approach the project in Los Angeles a little bit more, a little bit different, um, given all your experience? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we did that, the guide, that vendor power guide almost, I want to say almost 10 years ago. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of different things have changed uh, between then and now. I mean, one of them that seems obvious that we've talked about is, you know, how people, you know, have access to information, what kind of technology they're using to access it is, is different. Um, I think when we made that first guide, it seemed really obvious that it had to be print, that, you know, cell phone penetration wasn't large enough that it would make sense to be like, that's the primary mode. People just get it on their phone. That may still be the case that it needs to be print. But it seems like these are the kinds of things that are now kind of open open as questions of like, what are the other ways besides print that people are going to want to be able to have this information and be able to actually use it? Because in some ways, you know, the same amount of money that you put towards a print publication could be producing like a lot of other kinds of effects if you move it into a digital space. So that's like, you know, one, one big change. I think the other is that, you know, with the Street Vendor Project, it's like, when we wanted to do a distribution, like there was already an organization that had been doing organizing work for a decade. And, you know, it's like Manhattan is like, our, was the first place we did a distro. And it was just like, let's just walk around the streets and just like do, do the distro. And like, obviously that's not going to happen in LA um, to hit all the vendors. You can't just do like a street team. Like we're just going to walk all of like lower Manhattan right now. Um, so I think that sort of becomes its own kind of complicated thing of like, how would you actually reach all these different people who are in really different, just geographically parts, right. <laughs> parts of the city, um, is going to be really tricky. Yeah. Well, bending uh, at all hours of the day. Yeah. Big time. Well, it's cool that, you know, we're, uh, we have artists like you that, um, are thinking about how to, how to work side by side with organizers and working class people to get the word out about stuff. Yeah, and thinking about uh, working class people and street vendors specifically, do you think, do you see there being some sort of opportunity with this kind of information being spread out for street, spread out for street vending to be gentrified? You know, on the one hand, you know, it's sort of like, I said this actually at a panel a couple weeks ago where it's like one of the things that's really, to me, a big part of the character of LA is how informal everything is. It's like, Everything's illegal, but no one cares. Like, it's kind of like the baseline of like most. <laughs> the wild, you know, wild west. <laughs> it's like most, you know, most, I think there's some stat like, you know, like 60% of all like residential development is like not permitted. You know, it's like there's just everybody's got an addition or something, you know. And so that's in one way is it's kind of cool. Like everything is wild. You can do what you want. But it's also the situation where you have this super selective enforcement and then people have this precariousness of like, okay, I'm, I've got my addition and if the, you know, if my property for some reason becomes valuable or someone wants it, they can just call it in and I'm out. So I think, you know, obviously giving a legal framework and standing is super important on that one hand. But once you kind of start legalizing things, I think that does kind of open the door for enforcement, right? And then you start having like, okay, well, now that there's a law, like, all of you people have to get out of here because you're not in obedience with all of our law. And so I think that that's sort of, to me, part of the double-edged sword of, of legalizing something in LA is like now that there's a framework, you're, you're kind of inviting enforcement. So I think there's that. And then we've also sort of talked about this whole permitting thing that is, seems like very real. It's like, you know, like, and this is a problem, you know, in New York is that there are a set of permits, but they're kind of tightly controlled and there's almost kind of like a quasi, you know, I don't want 
like a very organized way of distributing those permits amongst people who already own them. So it's like, oh, I, I got the permit like four generations ago. Now you're going to buy it off me for like 10 times as much as I bought it for. And so you kind of create all these different like micro economies. You know, I think there's so many issues like that that just suddenly you, you open up. Um, and I think that I mean, if I remember correctly, like when I first moved here, there was this whole thing kind of happened with food trucks, right? Where there was sort of like, oh, great, we're going to celebrate food trucks. This is great. But then all of the kind of the the hype and the regulations around it sort of favored the people who are coming into that with a lot of capital. And I think that anytime you legalize something that sort of it creates a window, but it's like not everyone's going to have equal access to that window. Yeah, I remember that um, when that was happening, the gourmet food trucks were coming and causing a lot of problems, causing a lot of traffic. Um, and the folks that really got were hurt and harmed by that were the loncheros, the folks that were around in the community for decades. And said so we were just in our little corner, and all of a sudden it's like a hot spot, and they're going to start regulating this, and it's going to hurt all of us. It's our livelihood, you know? So it's interesting, really interesting dynamics. And I think that, that's always going to be the case. And it's just a matter of trying to get out ahead of <laughs> ahead of things and trying to structure those things so that as the, as these kind of new laws come online, they're set up in ways that don't just create exclusions for people um, who are, who've been doing what they've been doing, you know, safely and happily for, <laughs> for, for generations. So what, what values um, or what's your approach to the work so that it's done in a respectful way of those that have been, in communities for such a long time already doing this work? Sure. I, I mean, I think for me, like a basic principle of all this kind of, all the work that I do is is just nothing, no, nothing about us without us. You know, I think it's a really standard good best practices where it's like, you know, you don't make a project about, you know, a community unless they actually have not only participation, but real control over it, you know, and so you're willing to cede some power over the project to say, okay, like, you know, we're going to create a committee and it's going to have people who are not, you know, designers and like nonprofit executives <laughs> as part of it who have decision making power and be, or will be able to say like, yeah, this is not this is not doing what we want. Um, so I think giving up uh, control of a project is kind of like part of it and figuring out how to how to share the authorship and share, um, you know, not just the authorship of the thing itself, but, you know, the way it's distributed and um and the tone of it, all those kinds of things. I think that's like, to me, a really critical piece of it. The other, I guess, part of it is that, and it comes right along with that, is just doing that. Doing that also takes a lot of time. Because if, you know, if you're, if I've just like, I'm a painter, it's like, I can just like do this and it's in my studio and like no one else has to like say anything about it. And like, you know, that's one kind of project. And I think that that kind of working super valuable. But when you're trying to work with a large group of people, you're trying to include all these different voices and you're trying to be faithful to like a collective sentiment that just adds so much process and time onto like trying to produce something. So really budgeting in the time to figure out like how long is it going to take to like get everyone who needs to look at this to get a look at it you know, to do the translation of all these things into all the right languages, you know, really well, all those kinds of things that like, you know, it's easy to sort of have the right intention, but then you're like, ah, oh, but I got to get, you know, this out by the end of the week. So like, we can't, we can't actually involve all those people, you know, <laughs> and then you kind of cut corners and then you're like, oh yeah, no one's into this project. No one wants to support it because they weren't really involved. Um, so I think that's something that is like a, a possible pitfall of this kind of work that mm. you see a lot. Yeah. I think that there's like, um, well, I mean, artists have to make a living, 
um, you know, are, we're seeing folks that are, you know, artist entrepreneurs and that are selling products that have their work. And, um, but it is interesting to see how some work is monetized and there is almost like a generating of, of, of widgets. It's just trying to get things out. Uh, we've seen it here locally uh, when it comes to gentrification, going back to that topic for a second. And uh, we've seen like artists uh, get hired to like prom- uh, to paint murals on new developments that maybe might be luxury condos. Um, or uh, we've seen artists almost co-opted to promote a new neighborhood or a neighborhood that was it was actually an old neighborhood that is now being redesigned. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Is it really just about you know encouraging artists to stick to their guns and stick to their values? Like, what is the role of uh, of an artist in that on that front? Well, I think in general, I, I I I try not to make like strong distinctions between like what artists need to do versus like what like just like normal decent people need to do, <laughs> you know, like that like everyone has the same kind of I think um, the same kind of moral. Uh, moral code that they need need to kind of produce for themselves. And I think that um, to me, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very easy for an artist to be co-opted because they tend to be people who don't necessarily have like a ton of, um, they don't have a ton of like literal capital, but they maybe have a lot of social capital or these other kinds of things that they can like trade for capital, right? So it's like, oh, well, I'm just trying to make a living. So like this, you know, whatever this real estate developer wants me to like run a pop-up event in their thing. And that will let me and my friends like do a, a, you know, project, you know, there's just so many ways that like, if you have this artist mentality of like, I'm just trying to get by. So like, I'll just do whatever I can. And like, I'm just going to, I'm scamming the man when I do that. You know, I think that's like a very common, um, I mean, increasingly like, less less and less common but i think you know like even like a few years ago that would be sort of like a default mode for an artist is like oh well like let me just figure out how to like get whatever i can and i'm you know the work is like the most important part um you know i think that especially now when i don't know i i see this in my own sort of field of sort of like work that is is socially engaged that there's you know so many kind of in- cultural institutions that are kind of interested in having like that kind of work somehow uh represented you know so like they want to get a little bit of like that that gloss for for their for their museum or like biennial or whatever you know and so there's there's kind of like a co-optation of the idea of social justice in and of itself like it's like just having that kind of represented is kind of a good thing mm-hmm. um and i feel like anytime you kind of have that as your mindset is like oh well i'm trying to like get you know get recognition or get a name for myself um and that's like your primary value like you're just kind of you know that's like true for anybody you you just kind of leave yourself open to being co-opted by whoever right but if you have a commitment to a community or some values beyond that then you have like this other set of things to be thinking about of like do i want to do this project like does this you know how does this further these other you know set of values besides just sort of like having them represented in this you know space of of cultural prestige or something like that um so i think that's you know that to me is like a really big piece of, you know, that's missing throughout a lot of the discourse around like, how do artists kind of tie into gentrification? It's like, if an artist sort of sees inherently their role in a community as being sort of like, I'm just sort of like this like um, creature that gets by and I'll just kind of like move to wherever the, ch- the rent is cheap and I'm just trying to like do my thing, then you're only gonna be like a little tool of like a real estate developer. Like that's like, that's, you're just like, that's who you are, you know? 
but you have to build like a deeper tie to like to you, where you're from and and commitments to the people to your neighbors in order to have another perspective of like what you're trying to do. Uh, well, I think that that's something, Rostin, that I've appreciated about our talks um, and what you've already mentioned in this uh, interview is that um, you you do prioritize community engagement. When we began planning uh, the the vendor guide for Los Angeles you were really clear about, I wanna make sure that vendors are part of this. Can we identify vendors that will help me vet and go through the design? Can we make sure that we get feedback from vendors? Um, they are part of this theirs, and I think that that's really important, Rostin. It's cool to hear um, hear you as an artist sort of uh, have, include those values as part of your, your mantra, you know. Um, Rostin, um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an animator. And I was in drawing competitions, and I was like all about it. My mom was like, "Yeah, it's awesome, it's good. I'm gonna get you in this drawing competition." Dude, but I didn't know that. Yeah, I was like, I wanted to be an artist, but and eventually, as I got older, folks were like, "Wait a minute, bro, you can't keep doing that. Like, you're not gonna make a living as an artist." <laughs> um, and and then I kind of didn't have any more support, and so I kind of left it on the wayside. And I wonder if you have any advice for young people that are creatives and they want to build a career in the arts like what what do you say to them well i mean i really think this is true and i've been trying to reevaluate it a little bit lately but i do fundamentally think that it's really true that you just have to lean into what you're you're really interested in you know and i think that there's all kinds of stuff that when i was a kid you know whatever like video games or something like that and people would be like that's not that's not a good use of your time, <laughs> which, you know, maybe is, you know, is, is, is true to a certain extent. Is that the part you're reevaluating? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, but like I knew about a lot of like the kids I knew who were like really into like stuff like that and they just never stopped. It's like now they actually are doing game design, you know, and like it's like, oh, yeah, if like you are really committed to that, to anything, basically, I, you know, this is obviously not 100% true but it's like I think it's underlying truth that like if you if you devote a lot of time to something you can get good at enough good enough at it that you can kind of bring something special to it and like produce it in a meaningful way in your life so I think that that's just like one it's like really cliche but I think it's like kind of like undeniably true that like that like the stuff that that seemed like and it's also really hard to predict like what is actually like the future in terms of like you know like your, when your parents are like pick a skill that's like gonna be like a real lasting skill in the future it's like you know like there wasn't like a social media person you know like you know what I mean like <laughs> yeah. like what is actually like the future what people are doing for work in the future is like really hard to predict and it's probably it's closer to like what a kid is doing for entertainment right now than it is to whatever their parents are doing. You know, so I think that there's there is something true of that. You know, obviously there's like so much privilege. It's also built on that. It's like, yeah, no, it's true. Not everyone gets to do whatever they want to do. Like there's people who like work really hard and they just never they just don't have the resources or the connections to get ahead. And that so it's it's I don't want to be like, yeah, just work hard and like whatever is possible. That's like I think can be a really harmful f fiction out there. But um, but I do think that 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 to me is true. And I, a lot of times when I'm speaking with especially like people in like high school and then to college age, you know, who are, who know that they're sort of committed to a particular kind of creative work. You know, one thing I, I do think is really important is to like always kind of keep one part of like the work that you're doing to be exactly what you want to be doing, even if it means that like no one's paying you to do it. Um, Cause I think you see, you know, I, I do a lot of, 
you know, teaching and talking to people who are in art school. And I think you see a lot of people who are kind of like, oh, well, I really want to be doing like whatever commercial animation. But instead, like I'm working in like the, you know, whatever animation department of like a corporation kind of helping with like production or something like that. And it's like, you know, that may lead to like some stable income, but it actually isn't that close to what you want to be doing. And so, you know, it's really easy to kind of get caught up in being like, I'm sort of near nearby to what I want to be doing, but not quite. And I think that these days it seems like the easiest way to kind of actually move towards actually working on the work you want to be doing is to be doing that work just for yourself and like have some some like portfolio stuff that's like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And then that's how people get to know that work and then get to want you to do more of it. And you can't actually have that piece of stuff unless you just invest that time to make exactly what you want. You heard it here, you guys. So we are at the end of our session. And as you know, this is the No to Your City podcast. And so you've talked about Seattle. You've talked about New York. We've talked about L.A. Um, what city do you consider to be yours? Man. You know, I don't think, I feel like I have like a city that's like, that's truly mine. I mean, LA, it's like, I've been here 10 years and I still feel like I just got here. You know, I still feel like there's so much for me to learn about this place. Um, I definitely don't feel like, like Seattle or New York are like my, my home anymore. Um, I think, I, you know, I think I, you know, whenever I, like, I don't have, like, I have no idea what is even going on in Seattle now. Like, when I when I go there, like, I'm just like, what is this place? It has nothing to do with the city. That, like, it basically was, like, a fishing village when I grew up. And, like, <laughs> now, <laughs> and then there was, like, grunge and coffee and tech and, like, all this stuff has happened. And so I think I have, like, kind of, like, maybe, a, like, a, um, like, a bratty sense of, like, like, Seattle, like the old Seattle's like my real home, but like has nothing to do with what's going on there now, if that makes sense. So I do always kind of have that kind of connection to it, but it is a really weird, and I think a lot of people feel this, you know, about wherever they're from. It's like, it's like the city you grew up in is totally gone now, um, but you still have this allegiance to it. I mean, even if you stayed in the same city, you know, like I feel like probably anybody who grew up in LA is like, what is this? What um, have they done? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that's, you know, that's a, a place where I really feel like, okay, like I, I have like this kind of like high schoolers sense of like ownership over it and kind of bitterness about like what happened to it. So if there's one thing you want our listeners to know about the old Seattle, not the new Seattle, <laughs> what would that be? Oh man. I mean, I feel like the old Seattle was a place. I mean, and this is true. I think of a lot of cities where it's like, it was a place where like you could have a, like a working class job and have like a decent life. You know, you had like, you know, they were sort of like extractive industries, you know, but you had Boeing, you had warehouses, you had all these kind of places that were like a really stable kind of living. And I feel like there is something like that's kind of, you just don't have that feeling when you visit most kind of like large cities now. You don't have the sense of like, oh yeah, someone who's just like um, working a job can actually survive and live here. Like it seems like, you know, now you go to a city and you feel like the only way you could possibly like own a home is to like, be scamming in something in some way you know like you're like there's no one who owns home here who didn't get it you know 40 years ago who didn't like kind of do something wrong to get it <laughs> <laughs> on that note <laughs> thank you sir we appreciate your time so much it's been awesome to get to know you a little bit more and to learn about your approach to the work 
Yeah, thank you so much for all of that insight. And, you know, it, it, it's true. Stick to your integrity, stick to those values, and, and it's a good way to approach community work. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. We had so much fun recording with our guests and with our team. Make sure to rate and review us on the Instagram and Facebook and... Wait, is it? <laughs> Did you say the Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> iTunes. iTunes. Rate and review us on iTunes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends so they can subscribe too. 